0: Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. Today, we're cracking open our history books and heading back in time to visit some remarkable people and places that have been forgotten by most of us. Interesting and thought-provoking, funny and sad, Alex Dean has spent the last year in lockdown collecting some of his favourite stories and the result, Lessons from History, has now been published. Welcome, Alex. Alex Dean, welcome to the Bite Back Virtual Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, We're here to chat about your very entertaining book, Lessons from History, which I don't know if I I could describe it properly or I can do justice to it. But the way I would describe it is a collection of amusing vignettes and stories, forgotten stories from the past maybe 2000 years. I
1: couldn't have put it better myself, except the time spans a bit longer than 2000 years. But otherwise, yes.
0: (laughs) OK, fair enough. I did forget about the uh, Greek state of Palatia. That was probably a a bit further back. Um, So, yeah, this is, you know, it encompasses like loads of subjects, loads of time spans, you know, all around the world. Uh, So kind of the first question I wanted to ask you is how like what got you interested in history in the first place like as a child did you ever read horrible histories that might not have been around then like
1: sadly i'm too old for horrible histories <laughs> uh, um i um had a love particularly for military history like a lot of boys at least when i was growing up um and i i read a, a fair bit of it but actually um my immediate inspiration was my father who was a real kind of amateur history buff the house was always full of history books uh, and when I came to write um, the stories that are in the book, whilst a lot of them—and we can get into this very 21st-century kind of book—a lot of the stories were proposed by um, my Twitter followers and my kind of audience. Um, so it's a very interactive process. Uh, in the end, I still went back to books to, to write them. So, you know, I, I wrote a book about—I wrote a, um, a story today about Eisenhower—and um, to flesh it out. I had the kind of thoughts in my head, but I went back to my John Gunther um, biography of Eisenhower from 51. Uh, so before Eisenhower was president, so I went back to my three years with Eisenhower by Butcher about 42 and 45, which are books that I've had you know, on my shelves for I don't know, 15, 20 years. So some of these stories have been kind of percolating in the Dean brain for a very long time before they hit uh, paper.
0: Um, you must have a lot of history books on your shelves in that case. I do. Really-
1: uh, I do. And and so did my dad. So when I was right, my dad was sick when I was writing the book. And I, a lot of the stories were written when I was living with my parents in his last days in Bury St. Edmunds. So I was surrounded by his library, uh, which was a bit of an inspiration as well, as, as well as, you know, a bit of a escape uh, escape and safety valve um, on the time. So it was during lockdown. So, you know, any um, any distraction was more than welcome
0: exactly the perfect time to write a book I would say Um, but of course your book didn't start life as a book it started as um essentially a twitter project I would say
1: well I mean I didn't know if I was going to get to 10 stories when I was selling them online I just the first 10 dozen stories in the book are stories that I have kind of every history buff's got a few stories obviously that he really likes and that he kind of talks about and they were Um, A lot of them kind of stories that I would tell people at a dinner party or, you know, over drinks. Uh, Having run out of people to inflict them on uh, in the course of um, lockdown, I just started telling them online to see if anyone was interested. And it was really honestly, it was more for myself than than anything else. But um, the enthusiasm is the flattering part. The enthusiasm on Twitter from other people, similarly locked down and looking for like-hearted, but hopefully mildly entertaining and quirky uh, things was huge. And the reason that it wound up with you guys, Bite Back being far more professional than me, the reason it wound up with you guys is that literally within a dozen stories, there were you know hundreds of thousands of views for each story that I told and um, a, a huge appetite and lots of people saying, why don't you shove these together into a book?
0: Absolutely. So, what were your favourite dinner party stories that you were bringing out then? That kind of were the first dean history stories. Well, actually, um, I save the my absolute favourite is the
1: one that is last um, for obvious family uh, reasons and circumstances. I wrote it at uh, the that is the one about uh, Sir Thomas More, who, when he was Chancellor uh, of England, you know, the highest office in the the land of um, uh, of people who are uh, in the law, <coughs> when he was our Lord Chancellor. On his way to his court in Westminster Hall, he would pass the court. We would get the word court shared by tennis courts, which is where people had played uh, tennis in Westminster Hall, um, which people thought, by the way, was an urban legend. And then they did some refurbishment and found old tennis balls in the right. rafters. This went all the way around from being fact to urban legend to urban myth to being true again. Anyway, so Thomas Moore was passing through, um, would pass through Westminster Hall on his way to his. Um, court and on his way he would pass the court in which his elderly father sat as a relatively humble king's bench judge so vastly inferior in the judicial process to to the son and the son would stop there and to pay his respects and before all in the court he would kneel before uh, his father and ask his father's blessing on the work to be done and um, I like that lesson about you know honour your father and mother which seems to be one lost in in recent times Uh, a little bit uh, for some people So that's probably my absolute um, favorite. But the one I found myself um, talking about, not least because your fantastic um, designers put it on the cover, uh, is the story of Stanislav Petrov, um, Mm -hmm. who saved the world and is pretty much unknown. He was the lowly uh, lieutenant in a bunker in Russia who um, did not believe. Um, that a nuclear strike had been launched as the systems designed to tell you that a strike was being launched were telling him. He simply didn't believe the computer when it twice over said that the Americans had launched. Um, Petrov uh, was someone who, um, my God, how brave he must have been, uh, but also knowing the responsibility he had, refused to pass on the orders and to, to start the counterattack, which would have meant you know, nuclear winter and annihilation for, for the world, because he just thought the computers were wrong. Um, and thank God that he did that um, in his bunker. The story, I'm afraid, is not a happy one for him because he went on to you know, the Soviet Union did not admire disobedience, even if it had saved the world. And he uh, went on to shuffle sideways and downwards in his job, mental breakdown, uh, you know, despair um, and, and total almost total anonymity, of course, during the Cold War, when this story was not widely discussed by the Soviets at all. And that's one I find really touching, because the sacrifice that he made was for us all. You and I, Vicky, would not be here, I think, if if he hadn't done that. But his story is completely unknown, or almost completely unknown. So that's the sort of story that I was setting out to tell.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, that's the nice thing about your book, is that it really does go out of its way to tell the stories of events and people that are kind of not so well known about and certainly when i was reading, i would consider myself a little bit of a history nerd like a lot of the stories most of the stories in the book i didn't really know about at all um i no. mean <laughs> yeah i very much enjoyed making my way through them. some of them i definitely chuckled at. um i really did enjoy it so yeah why, why do you think i suppose it's really hard to, to, to give a definitive answer on this but why do you think these stories and these people like have been shuffled sideways
1: yeah, some of it simply because so much happens, right? In history, so much happens that in the end, you can only focus on a lot of the grand strategic um, events. And a lot of these um, things get kind of lost. Some of it is also lost by convenience. So the very first story uh, that I told and kind of generated a lot of uh, the interest in later ones was about Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, who was a, a marshal in the French army. And by dint of it being convenient for the Swedes to have someone from outside and thinking probably quite wrongly in the end, that he was close to Napoleon, um, the Swedes recruited him to be their king. Now, modern Sweden might not like very much the notion that they just imported the, the most convenient Frenchman um, to be their king, and, and that's, that's the, that, the, the house that reigns in Sweden to this day. You know, so if you think about who, who got the better deal in the end, um, Napoleon, the great, you know, the, the great Bonaparte emperor um, whose house rose and fell, or Bernadotte who went off to Sweden and whose lineage is live with us right now in 2021, you've probably got to say Bernadotte, right? But this, you know, if you're Swedish, you'd probably rather forget that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And kind of, at the end of every story, you include a lesson from history, which is of course like the, um, the reason for the title of the book. Why why did you do that? Why did you include the lessons?
1: Um, so I, have, I hope it doesn't feel too trite some of the, the lessons that, um, that are there. And at the very beginning, they're, they're slightly less than this when I was telling the stories. But it really, it, it, it really took off because when I was telling the story that you um, mentioned about Plataea, and Plataea allied itself with Athens and fought with great courage, you know, one of the best words in Greek, which I'll of course be accused of mangling and mispronouncing, but panistrata or panistrata, which means, you know, come, come at once with every able-bodied person. You know, Athens sent for help against the Persians to everybody and nobody came except the tiny city-states of of, um, of Plataea who came panicked to Chile, all 1,000 of them They'd drop drop everything come running and it was of great um, far more important than their actual military contribution which was not slight but was the fact that the Athenians didn't have to fight alone and the Athenians you know gave great honour to the Plataeans and they shared their ceremonies and, and funeral rites and uh, after the battle and so forth which is normally which was normally reserved for the Athenians themselves fast forward to when Plataea needs some help and sends for help um, from the Athenians. And there are various prevarications and instructions not to get into further trouble. And basically they hung them out to dry. And the, because it was politically inconvenient to kick, kick off a larger conflict in, um, in, uh, in their environment than it was to go to Plataeaus aid. And, and I ended that story by saying, the lesson is that everyone is a great friend when they need you. Not everyone is a great friend when you need them. And uh, so it's not not quite the lighthearted thing that we were just we were talking about. But the the point is that that resonated with a lot of people. And that was one of the things that really boosted the readership on Twitter, because hundreds of people were retweeting that and talking about it and saying, you know, such an old event, but but, you know, eternal life lessons and stories and so forth. So after that, I started including you know little lessons from uh, from history, what what the lesson from the story might be. And uh, the one that has resonated with a lot of people at uh, the most is the story, again, completely, I think, neglected and, until, uh, well, it of sound, sound, sound modest to say, until me, uh, but a story largely neglected is that of Leonid Rogotsov, who was the doctor on the 6th Soviet Antarctic expedition, who, as the blizzards uh, of the Antarctic mm-hmm. world around him in his camp, realised that he was sick, and he had, in the end, to master and commander style, if you've seen the film, prop up a mirror. And remove his own appendix. There was no other doctor there. He, 27-year-old guy, realised he was going to have to cut himself open and uh, and operate on himself. So oh, that's well, yeah, quite. But I mean, well, not. It's not just hard to. It's easy to say it. It's quite hard to contemplate, and especially if you're very nauseous, as he was, and you cannot take anaesthetic because you need to have a clear head. So, I mean, he cut into his as he did it. He cut it. He made a mistake and cut into his own intestines. So he had to pause in the operation, sew himself back, sew his own guts back up in his um, intestines before he went on to remove his own appendix. And the reason, the lesson from that one, which a lot of people um, took to heart was, you know, the next time you think you're having a bad day, Vicky, mm-hmm, reflect mm-hmm. on the fact that you could be with the Antarctic ice blowing around you, with a nearest Soviet base a thousand miles away, no help coming, and looking down at your own guts and realizing you're going to have to cut yourself open. Yeah, there are um, things can always be worse, and, and in lockdown, that one seemed opposite.
0: Yeah, it certainly does put a lot of things in perspective, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it comes to your stories as well, um, you mentioned you have massive following. Do they help you? Like, do they bring stories to your attention? Is it a kind of a collaborative oh, thing when it comes to huge, that? Hugely.
1: That's, that's absolutely right and fair. That after the first 10 or so, which, as I say, I'd been boring on about for a while, um, the stories were, were led very significantly by the people for whom I was writing. Large group of people who'd followed kind of Dean History online. And they are, many of them are acknowledged in the book. Some people, fascinatingly, just didn't want to be acknowledged. They'd I'd rather not be. I was really happy to suggest a story. Please don't mention me. But a lot of people did want to be acknowledged and they're in, they're in the back of the book. But, you know, fully half of the stories that I tell were, were stories that have been suggested to me by somebody saying, I love the way that you tell history. It's the sort of thing that would infuse me or infuse my kids to get interested in history again. Could you tell this one? And, they, you know, they might include a link and I'd have to go and bottom it out and make sure it actually happened, and then <laughs> hopefully find a, find a book about it and um, do some research. This, by the way, it cost me a bit of money in this project, <laughs> way, I'm ordering books I never thought I'd, I was interested in um, to flesh things out. But so some people had to wait a bit because, you know, even if they might have asked for a story some weeks ago that was hard to verify. And somebody might suggest a story that was really very easy to verify and tell in a day. And so people were messaging me on Twitter like, why haven't you told my story yet? And the answer was I had to flesh it out. Um, But in the end, there was not one tip that I was given that couldn't be fleshed out and bottomed out. There's a lot of love for history out there, uh, Vicky. And that was part of the the enthusiasm and motivation to to keep me going because people were really keen on it. In fact, if I posted after midday, they'd start to moan and say, where's today's story? So, which is very flattering and and very nice. But it meant that I, um, I really did feel like I had to get on with it.
0: <laughs> and one of the nice things about your book is that it's very lighthearted. Like it does obviously address some serious subjects. And of course, it being history, not everyone gets a happy ending. But looking through, the tone is very light. It is funny. One of my favourite stories, I think, is the was it the Calcutta Light Horse. I think yeah,
1: it's a great story.
0: For the sheer jaw-dropping audacity of the project that actually went completely according to the plan, which is unusual when it comes to World War II Operations, I think.
1: A, a crazy one, and not. I, I've got to be fair on that. That was turned into a film. That was turned into a perfectly um, serviceable movie, and with Roger Moore in it, and David Niven, and Gregory Peck. It just the movie didn't have the success that people might have expected. Uh, but the, the the wonderful thing about that was that they. It's a story that requires a bunch of blokes of a certain age. You know, because the, the point of the story, as you've been implying, is deeply improbable. The um, British agents, uh, special operations executive who were in India, had worked out that um, some boats that were interned in Goa, which was, of course, Portuguese and therefore neutral, Uh, some German boats were transmitting messages to their U-boats about British shipping with huge loss of life and huge loss of tonnage of shipping as a result. But we couldn't go in formally and remove them with, say, our military because Goa was neutral and we needed to keep Portugal on side. So on a a wheeze almost, uh, which sort of boys own adventure uh, mix uh, along with the old boys network, um, the Special Operations Executive went up. Um, to their friends some 1,400 miles away in Calcutta and recruited some guys in the Calcutta Light Horse, which was a unit that had been on reserve since the Boer War. Um, So full of, I mean, not not all of them were were that old, but, you know, they were getting on. It was a genteel club for men in their advanced middle age to play polo. Uh, And these SOE guys said, can't tell you anything about it. Um, Can't uh, guarantee uh, safety, in fact, quite the reverse and we're looking for volunteers, and every single man in that um, club, uh, that Calcutta Light Horse, uh, volunteered. They made their way across or around India, some of them went by rail, some of them went on a boat that was plainly completely unsuitable, they were in a barge basically, um, and sailed all the way around India from the northeast coast, all the way up to the west coast to Goa, or midway up the west coast to Goa. The plan was, um, get on board these German ships. Um, kill the Germans, seize the code books, sink the ships, if captured, um, claim that you were a businessman out on a lark and that you were, uh, throw your guns over the side and claim that you were out on uh, on, a, on a frolic, and uh, a point that you will support by pouring whiskey all over yourselves before you uh, begin the mission, which they all did, I'm sure they didn't drink any, uh, which they uh, all did. And it, I mean, each part of that plan is plainly preposterous, and all of it worked, and indeed, the score sheet comes up with us coming out plus two because not only um, did uh, we not lose life amongst the British um, men who did, carried out the assault, we gained a couple of Germans who said, I've had enough of this. I'd like to come along and work for you in Special Operations Executive. In fact, revealed way, way after the war when these archives were uh, were unveiled and we turned out that we operated these German agents so for, for years after the war, for years during and after the war um, as a result of, uh, of the raid. And my, the coda, which I love, too, is, is that they get back to all safe and sound, get back to Calcutta. And these men are told, oh, one more thing, chaps, you know, don't mention any of this. Um, Portuguese wouldn't like it, you see. So they didn't. None of them said a word, they took it to their graves. It came out in the archives that this had even happened. It's mean, absolutely extraordinary, I think. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great um, anecdote. So I'm glad you liked it
0: it's good it's told very well and that's kind of that's the thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of do you feel like history today is it generally a bit dry like do you think people need humor to connect with history
1: yes absolutely I completely believe that I think that is I think that's totally fair and reasonable and if you want to get people interested in things I think starting from the the fact that they you you should be have a take a position that's biddable, that you know, people should want to be interested in it. And yeah, most of the stories are, are two, three pages long in the book, which is another call to arms for people trying to get uh, others interested in history. It's not, you know, dense prose and, and getting disappeared in the manufacturing statistics of mid-1970s Spain or something. It's, um, you know, it, it's lots of daring do, um, told concisely. And I think that's how you should tell things. And indeed, even with really important figures so I've got a story in the book about um Abraham Lincoln about whom you might think what more is there left to tell um and the story that I told about um Lincoln is that he was before he was president obviously challenged to a duel um he had um uh, defamed said his uh, putative duelist he defamed um a man in, in writing uh, who called him out and uh Lincoln and his um his opponent to camp to Missouri, where dueling was still legal. And um, the, the, the reason that it, it's lost to history is that it wasn't actually really fought. Because as the person who was challenged, Lincoln got to choose the weapons. And he who was, you know, a foot and a half taller than his opponents with these enorm- famously enormously long arms said, I think we'll fight with broadswords in a pit. And as they <laughs> descended down into the pit, um, Shields, who was his, um, his, his opponent, looked up to see Abraham Lincoln wh- um, whirling the sword over his head, thinking, I'm never going to be on a bike, I'm never going to touch this guy. And Lincoln whacked a tree branch with it, chopping this tree branch off with a, a broadsword. And Shields, I think, thought, hey, gosh do you know what, I'm not so sure about this dueling business after all, but perhaps we can uh, settle this over a pint. Uh, <laughs> and so really. that, that, was the, that was the end of the affair. And it was occasionally brought up with Lincoln. Um, and I think it, um, but often by admirers who thought it was cool, right, and, thought, and was inviting him to tell the story. But whilst he never denied the truth of that, he always hated to talk about it. And I'd like to think, I think that was because he thought it was all rather dishonorable and something that was not certainly not to be admired, which I think is a good attitude to have had. The other nice postscript is that then, of course, he became president and the Civil War came, and Shields um, was nominated by Lincoln for a promotion. Uh, So um, any rift that had been in existence between those two men was uh, mended by duty, which I think is a good little lesson.
0: That is a good lesson hearing these stories the kind of the first thing that springs to mind for me is that you're not really or at least I certainly wasn't and I think people probably aren't now taught this in schools.
1: Yeah totally fair I mean it's funny isn't it we are rightly we are rightly encouraged to revisit history so that it's not all told one from the from the view of the victor. That that's difficult to do, but but right to try. Two, that it's more reflective. It's not just all about the, the cliche that people think about is you know old white guys, and that's not all history. But that can, it can be right to seek to balance the books. No pun intended, by revealing the stories of of other types of people in society and the times you're concerned about. But You can still tell stories and you can still still tell stories in interesting ways. And I think one of the um, things that I would point to in that as people have sought to rebalance the, the telling of um, history is that I've got some stories which I at least think are really interesting and uh, and kind of daring do type stories about women who fought in um, in the conflicts of, of interest in the second world war most especially but I told the story in the book of the heroine of Warsaw um, who you know gets some total of a page and a half in my uh, book actually gets a lot more I should say in Judy Battalion's uh, book uh, The Light of Days which I drew on for it. Which is about—I'm going to get crucified for mangling this as well—but the <laughs> Haluzen Maiden or the Pioneer Girls, which is a port. reason really it's difficult is a portmanteau word from Hebrew and German. So, you know, I, I as a typical monoglot Brit, am going to always going to struggle with it. But anyway, I told the story of Little Wonder with the braids, a woman called Newton Teitelbaum, who um, fought in the Warsaw Uprising. Uh, personally, took on and destroyed a heavy machine gun nest. Um, took part in the attack on the Germans when they were pounding the Jewish ghetto and, you know, taking on artillery. Uh, But the reason she's best remembered is that she used to um, go in undercover and uh, she dressed herself in a Polish maidens outfit, which is apparently her favourite sort of cover um, attire, and just walked into the Gestapo HQ, um, no doubt looking the picture of innocence, waved past the guards, politely asks the name for a particular officer. They must have all thought, what a lucky chap, and escorted her into the office of the German concerned. She finds not one but three Nazis in the office. She shoots all three. Two die. One's taken to hospital. She dresses up in another outfit, goes into the hospital and finishes the job. I mean, you know, she she wasn't mucking around. And uh, that's the sort of story that I think is, you know, it's got a great deal going for it, whether it be about... um, minorities whose story haven't been told, uh, uh, certainly I think the stories of heroism amongst uh, Jewish people in the Second World War doesn't fit with the way a lot of narrative of history views Jews solely as victims and solely as people who um, were were people that didn't um, fight back and absolutely they they did. But secondly, it's a great story about women and it's a great story about, uh, she wasn't the only one. There's a whole book, as I say, Judy Battalion's book um, about these women and they've been very neglected for a long time. So if people's concern with history is that it's not reflective, then make it more reflective to whatever you think is being left out while still telling stories, because in the end, that's what's going to interest people about history. It's stories or it's nothing, I think.
0: I also feel like it's a, very, a bit of a shame that the, the syllabus these days, especially when I was in school and now I think it's, it's so narrow, it's basically World War II and the Tudors. Um, so- you know you've got everything at your fingertips it just seems very limited to just be studying those things over and
1: over but maybe, yeah, yeah I I mean look I'm not a history teacher I one mm. I should, should have said this right at the beginning shouldn't I Vicky I am mm. not an historian I am that classic British eccentric thing of an enthusiastic amateur mm. uh, I in on one view I've got no right to criticize anyone who's devoted themselves to teaching history on the other hand it does seem to me from what I hear that it could be a little less reductive and you know not just Tudors and second world war and it could do a bit of a better job at telling stories rather than um, lecturing.
0: Uh, And talking about stories, I wanted to ask you, you're saying you're a typically eccentric Brit, Uh, do you think the British in particular have a love for history? I think especially the kind of balmy history that's so well exemplified in your book. Yeah,
1: well I I do think that, and I think that, I mean each country has its own interest in history, and the French have got some super uh, books about their own history, but they tend much more to the philosophical. There are, it's certainly the, the, the book market, I think, bears out the fact that the Brits are more interested in history than most. The Americans are too, but a lot of it's very domestic history and a lot of it's um, the, the American Civil War, which drives a huge amount of the American uh, book market in, in history, I think. But the point is, you know, there are things that we lack. You know, politicians writing book length treatises on their philosophy are in the front of bookshops in Paris right? But it's just unimaginable in Britain, right? Mm-hmm. It's unimaginable in London to find that, you know, you, you wouldn't really have a politician unless he was an intellectual, or, he, or she was an intellectual. Uh, well, but in, So the French have a great deal more interest in, in that. But I do think that um, they've got a little, maybe it's just this current time, but I think we outshine others in our appetite for history, which I think is pretty much, thank goodness, inexhaustible.
0: Yes, and I think we do have a lot of extremely wacky uh, pioneers in our history which makes for excellent storytelling um, yeah
1: that's absolutely right too and a lot of them are people whose uh, whose lives um were famous at the time but but not now um, I, I think of um i think of a, a story that i told quite late on in um the course of doing um uh, the, the stories which we called Twinset pearls and world records uh about a woman who by the time she died had had her obituary on the stocks at the Telegraph for like 50 years. Um, Camilla Bruce, who uh, was the first person who drove further north in the Arctic Circle than anyone had ever driven, in a, her normal car, just did it in her saloon car. Uh, mm-hmm. She was in the Monte Carlo Alley when she had a, a crash, turned her car over. Uh, they dug it, they pulled it out, um, got it refitted, and she started again and still finished first. They broke the Dover Calais crossing and back record by speedboat, flew solo to Tokyo and back. I mean, classic British eccentric right um who also by the way volunteered herself when war broke out that she flew manically in the air so that the army could use her as spotlight target practice um, in the second world <laughs> war uh, and then when the war got underway she operated an air ferry service for our forces in France so I mean absolutely fantastic and she's a brilliant did things that women weren't supposed to do um, and I think another great British eccentric.
0: Uh, so, with such a glut of stories at your fingertips, uh, the big question is will there be a uh, Dean Histories 2?
1: Let us see how this one sells, is the, the point. If Bite Back's willing and there's an audience interest, I, I would certainly not rule it out. And in fact, I've, I've told a few online since we went to press for Lessons in History, and they seem to have gone down well. So, you could even say that it's already
0: started. Okay, watch this space in that case. Exactly. Uh, and then final question, and to round things off, what's one thing you hope people take away from reading lessons from history?
1: Um, not only do I hope people enjoy it, which would be the main thing that I hope. And if there is a kind of more pious hope, it would be that history doesn't have to be dull. And I genu- the number of people who said to me in the course of these stories being told, if that's how history had been told when I was at school, I would have done it for A-level instead of dropping it. If that's how history was told in school, my kids would love it instead of hating it. That's the thing I want people to take away.
0: Alex Dean, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If hearing Alex's stories of daring do has piqued your interest, then why not check out his book, Lessons from History? It's out now and available from all good bookshops. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.